1993, Nelson Mandela became the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in ending apartheid in South Africa. It was a lifelong journey for Mandela, and it was his, his life's work really was poured into ending that societal problem that separated black and white in South Africa. His advocacy against apartheid landed him in jail for many, many years. He spent 27 years of his life in prison in various places in South Africa, some of the worst prisons in the country. Finally, he was released in 1990 and became the first black president of South Africa. And Nelson Mandela is celebrated as being a, a great hero in South Africa, ending apartheid. For all those years that he was in prison, perhaps his opponents felt that they could keep him in chains, keep his message locked up. And yet, we all know that during those 27 years, the message spread. People were crying out, release Mandela, release Mandela. And eventually, his movement gained steam so that within several years of him being released from prison, apartheid came to an end. And it makes you think that of those opponents, both of Mandela and, and lots of movements throughout history, who think that locking up our, our enemies will put a stop, stop to their message. You know, we think of uh, other people who advocated and, and Martin Luther King Jr., for instance, was put in jail a number of times. It, it didn't seem to slow, however, the civil rights movement. And we can list other, others as well. Point is, chains oftentimes are an ineffective tool for silencing a message, aren't they? And certainly that is true of the church. As we look at the New Testament, as we look at the Bible, we see that the gospel is not chained. Paul says that in 2 Timothy 2. The, Paul, the gospel is not chained. Even though he is, the message goes out. See, ideas can't be chained. And certainly, the gospel is more than just an idea. The Bible says it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So the gospel cannot be chained. But as we look at Paul, and especially here in the book of Philippians, we see a man who is experiencing the worst life has to offer. He's, he's currently in prison in Rome. Now, his conditions could be worse. We can imagine situations that might be worse. But this is not a good situation. And what do we know about the book of Philippians? It's a book overflowing with joy. The very opposite of what you would expect. A, a man in prison, a man who is afflicted, is rejoicing in Christ. Why? What what would cause him to be so exuberant as a prisoner of Rome? I think we have to look at Paul's mindset. And we have to look at what was truly important to Paul. And I think as we do, we come across a truth that I want us to grasp this morning. It's this truth. That we can experience joy and hardship when we put the gospel first. We can experience joy and hardship when we put the gospel first. We see this in Philippians chapter 1. We see it all throughout the book of Philippians. But particularly here in verses 12 through 18. The hardships that Paul is experiencing are transformed into joyful things because he puts the gospel first. That's what really mattered to him. 
And it allowed him to see past the inconvenience, past the, the even uh, discomfort of being a prisoner, to see what really mattered. So let me ask this question of all of us, because we're all going to face hardship, right? If we're not currently experiencing it, we will soon. So how can you have joy when hardships come? Well, one way is by looking to what really matters. Putting the gospel first, like Paul did. You might ask, well, how does my hardship put the gospel first? Or, or how do I do that? I mean, how does my illness or my disability serve to further the gospel? Well, you might be surprised. Uh, it may bring you into contact with doctors and nurses and people you otherwise never would have met. Well, you say, well, how, does my, how do my other problems factor into being an opportunity? How, how does my family problems prove to be an opportunity to further the gospel? Well, it may be that through your spirit of grace and kindness, the gospel is communicated even to those family members and beyond. You say, well, what about my, my awful, miserable job situation? How can that possibly be an opportunity to further the gospel? Well, maybe through your diligence, your hard work, and your joyful spirits, you might introduce someone else, maybe even on that job, to the love of Christ. Well, let's look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Now, we've seen previously that at the beginning of this letter, Paul introduces himself and he offers up a prayer in verses 3 to 11. It's a prayer of thanksgiving first and then a prayer of request that their love would abound and that they would grow in knowledge and discernment. But now we get to the meat of the letter, if you will. The, the real information that Paul is wanting to impart to them because he's writing to tell them about his affairs. They have been curious, and no doubt the Philippian church had been wondering, how's Paul doing? We heard he got arrested. We heard he's in prison. But maybe this was a topic on the Wednesday night prayer meeting at the Philippian church. Oh, let's all pray for Paul. Yeah, poor Paul. He's in jail. He must be miserable. And so they're wondering, how's he doing? How's he getting along? How's the gospel? Because of Paul's terrible misfortune. Well, he writes back to them to inform them. He says... It's not a misfortune. It's actually a reason for rejoicing. Look with me, if you will, in, in verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The things that have happened, these, these, his imprisonment and all of the misfortunes that go with it, he says, have actually worked to further the gospel. So he wasn't discouraged, he wasn't suffering, he wasn't uh, throwing a pity party. Instead, he's rejoicing because of what God was doing. He sees his hardship and he's able to look through it because he puts the gospel first. And when we do that, it will change the way we see hardship. When we put the gospel first, it makes difficult circumstances become a platform to share the gospel. Difficult circumstances become a platform to share the gospel when we put the gospel first. Here's the question. How do you and I view difficult circumstances? Are they major inconvenience? Uh, something that causes you to be angry or to feel hurt? If so, it might be. It might be that the gospel is not first in your thinking. 
Something else is first, like your convenience, or your comfort, or me. But Paul has the gospel first, so that's why he can look, and we see his, his hardships are transformed here. Verse 12, he begins by saying, I want you to know, brethren. Again, again they were thinking and wondering about his condition. Now he says, I, don't, I want you to know. Here, here's, I want you to be informed about how I am. And he writes them not to just tell them the, the bare bones of here's what's happening, but rather to rejoice with him that the gospel is going out. You know, this he says in verse 12, the things that happened to me. You see that? The things which happened to me. What, what's that? Well, it's his imprisonment, but it starts all the way back in Acts chapter 20. In Acts 20, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. And all along his travels, he was warned again and again, chains and imprisonment await you in Jerusalem. And yet he said, I need to go. I must go. He did, but the, the warnings were right. When he gets to Jerusalem, there's a great riot. He's arrested. And then he's sent off to Caesarea where he stands trial before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And while he's there, he pleads to Caesar. He appeals his case. And according to Roman law, as a Roman citizen, every Roman citizen had the opportunity to appeal to Caesar, which meant that your case would be taken up to Rome. So he was taken by ship to Rome. There he was placed under house arrest. We read this in Acts chapter 28. You say house arrest, that doesn't sound so bad. Well, he didn't have an electronic ankle bracelet. Instead, he was chained every day to a Roman soldier. So he had some freedom, but not total freedom, not at all. And it's in that circumstance that he writes back to the Philippians. He says, these things, the whole adventure from the beginning to the end, now I'm in prison in Rome, I'm shackled with chains, all of those things happened. Why? For the furtherance of the gospel. They've turned out for the further. Instead of hindering the gospel, which is what you would expect, right? You would think, if Paul is in chains, he's not able to move freely. He's not able to go around and start churches. He's not able to minister like he was before. So you would think that the things that happened to him had worked out for the hindrance of the gospel. Or maybe you would think that he would say, the things that have happened to me, uh, have, the gospel has gone out in spite of those things. That's not what he says. He says it's because of those things. In other words, he sees that this has actually been the best way to get the gospel out is through his chains. A totally different way of looking at it. All of these things that have taken place have worked out to actually push the gospel forward. Now, this word advance or furtherance of the gospel is interesting. It describes... Clearing of property, like if an army was moving through and needed to clear space, this was the word that was used. Or to clear out underbrush. <coughs> Ever had to do that, where you have uh, have to clear out some forest? It's not easy work, is it? I was reading uh, last year uh, the book Pioneers by David McCullough. It tells the story of the first uh, settlement in the Northwest Territory of the United States in what's modern day Marietta, Ohio. And it tells about how the pioneers sailed up the river on boats, and they chose that area. And they were cutting back years of growth and clearing the land so they could plant. And it was laborious, hard work. Well, that's the picture that Paul uses here, the advance of the gospel. It's moving forward slowly, 
with difficulty sometimes, but it's always pushing forward. It's not on the retreat, it's going ahead. It's working out for the furtherance of the gospel. And it's actually an interesting word to use for the advance of the gospel. So when the gospel moves forward, it's, in essence, tearing out the deeply entrenched roots of this world system. It's tearing out the roots of sin in people's lives. It's clearing the land, so to speak, as it moves forward. This is the gospel, which is the power of God at work. Paul's chains actually work to further that gospel. How? Or perhaps we could ask why. He gives two reasons why this current situation is actually working out for the good. Number one, it's that the gospel was reaching unbelievers in prison. The gospel was reaching unbelievers in prison. So his, his prison became his pulpit. The gospel was not hindered because he was using it as a platform to make the news known. Look at verse 13. So that it became evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. So how was the gospel being furthered in his chains? Well, everybody who came across Paul in his imprisonment came to know why he was there. That his chains were, quote, in Christ. Paul was a prisoner because of his faith in Jesus and because he believed that a, a man who walked the hills of Judea and Galilee was the Son of God who came to save the world from their sins. He was in prison because he believed that Jesus, the Messiah, died on a cross to pay for sins and that he rose again the third day. And, and everyone who came across Paul heard about this. In fact, look at what it says in verse 13. It has become evident or manifest, plain. In other words, no one can mistake it. It's become plain to the whole palace guard. In fact, the word that's used here is Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard was an elite group, about nine or 10,000 men in all. It was essentially Caesar's bodyguard. It was like the Secret Service. These were his select men. They also worked as the police force, or almost like a secret police, throughout Rome. They made sure that the emperor's interests were protected, and that he was protected. So this would be something like the secret service. One of their duties, though, was to protect those who were under the house of Caesar, his family, but also anyone who appealed to Caesar was under his care. So Paul, as a prisoner, was actually under the household of Caesar, and so he was protected by this elite group. The Praetorian Guard would have issued one soldier at a time to, to be chained directly to Paul. So they would have linked arms, you know, just like a, a police officer or something like that might handcuff themselves to a convict. So the guard would latch himself literally onto the Apostle Paul for a period of about four to six hours. Those were the ships, four to six hours, and another soldier would come along. What do you think Paul talked about for four to six hours while he had a captive audience? Well, if I know anything about Paul, and I know that he put the gospel first, you can bet that he talked about Jesus with these people. And, and so, guard after guard, and I imagine some of them sat there with a cold look and a steel face, but some listened. Some heard what he had to say. Let me tell you about Jesus. 
Do you know why I'm here? He might just introduce. And on he would go and tell them about all that he had seen and heard of Jesus. Not only that, they saw other things as well. They probably were there, chained to him as he prayed, hour after hour for the churches that were under his care. They saw as he wrote Philippians. They would have been chained to him as he was penning this letter or dictating the letter, however it worked. The fact is, they were exposed to this message. Think about it. How on earth would the gospel have ever reached the Praetorian Guard? Here's this elite group of Roman soldiers that worked for Caesar. What missionary is going to go and start a chapel for them? Well, here Paul has an audience. He's reaching people that would otherwise never be reached. In fact, if you look at verse 13, he says it's become evident to the palace guard, the Praetorian guard, and to all the rest. All the rest of who, Paul? Well, he doesn't say. It leaves it open. All the rest of the, the Roman soldiers? All the rest of Rome? We don't know. The point is, it's gone far beyond just his little room. The message has gotten out. You know, these, these guards, after being released, went home to their families and said, I've been chained to this guy Paul all day. He's got some really interesting things to say. He seems to be convinced that this Jewish rabbi in Israel was the Savior of the world, the Son of God. I'm kind of interested. I want to go back tomorrow and see what else he has to say. And so the message begins to spread far and wide. It starts reaching people that otherwise probably never would have been reached with the gospel at all. Let me ask, in your hardships, sometimes you're put into contact with people you never would have contacted before. Whether it's in that difficult job, whether it's because of that medical condition, whether it's because of that accident, whatever hardship, and then we can list off dozens of different scenarios, but it may bring you into contact with people you wouldn't meet otherwise. Do they see Jesus in you? Do, do they get a, a piece of the gospel, or, or do they come away thinking that you're just like them, another angry, frustrated person? You see, if we put the gospel first, those difficult circumstances become a platform. Paul looks at this and says, this is awesome. I'm chained to a prisoner all day, and I get to preach. See, for him, what could have been a, a miserable situation turned into a platform. Look, I get to share my faith. Not only that, not only were unbelievers being reached, but also, Paul says, another effect of his imprisonment was that the gospel was being preached by believers with boldness. Look at verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident of my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So these brethren, and he's talking about others in Rome, who are hearing about his imprisonment are becoming emboldened. And we don't know exactly why. Because you would think that this would dishearten them, wouldn't you? You know, if they find out Paul's in jail, well, I don't want to preach and, and talk about the gospel, or I'm going to end up in jail too. But what do they see from Paul? It's not, woe is me, I'm in jail, this is awful. They see him saying, look, I'm preaching the gospel in prison. I'm joyful, I'm glad that I'm here. So the brethren say, Maybe that's not such a bad opportunity after all. Maybe I should be like Paul and preach that gospel to make it known. And so his chains were actually encouraging people to be bold in their witness for Jesus. They were being inspired 
to send out that message. The point is, Paul's hardship, his difficult circumstances have worked out to actually further the gospel. He was reaching more people and, and different people now than he had ever reached before. All because of his chains. He could have seen his circumstances as a terrible and depressing turn of events. And I, I would guess, I would dare say, that many of us would view our difficult circumstances that way. Oh, why is this happening? This is such an inconvenience. This is such a nightmare. But Paul looks at it and says, it's such an opportunity. Because for him, the gospel comes first. And because of that, it was going out and it was being furthered by his chains. I, I found it really wonderful illustration of this in the book Captive in Iran. It's the story of uh, Miriam Rostampour and Marzia Meritzadeh. They are two Iranian women who came to trust in Christ as their Savior. They immediately began sharing the gospel and, and handing out Bibles in Tehran, which is not a place very friendly to that kind of activity. They did it as covertly as possible. They tried to keep a low profile. They tried not to draw attention to themselves. But they handed out tracts. They handed out Bibles when they could. Well, they were discovered. Men from the Basiji, which was like a uh, secret police, if you will, in Iran, came to their apartment, stormed it, and arrested them. They were taken and eventually ended up in Evan Prison, which is one of the most notorious prisons in all of Iran. But before they got to Evan, they were held in a place called... Um, the Vazaro Detention Facility or uh, Center. And there, they encountered countless other women who had been arrested for various crimes. They were originally only supposed to stay for three days. They ended up staying in that uh, Vazaro facility for two or three weeks. Listen to what they said about that experience. They write, During that time, we witnessed to dozens of women we never would have met if the authorities had followed the three-day rule. What a miracle it was that we'd been able to meet and encourage so many women. What man meant for evil, God used for his good and his glory. The people who arrested us thought we were suffering in misery. In fact, we had shared the gospel more openly behind bars than we had ever been able to do outside. Even the two guards, who were especially rude to us, apologized on the last day and asked us to pray for them. Sounds an awful lot like Paul, doesn't it? In Philippians 1. That they said we were allowed to share the gospel more openly in prison. Because, you know, they didn't have any fear of being arrested. They were already in prison. What's, what's there to fear? So they were able to talk about Christ without hushed tones. Isn't that amazing? Here's two ladies who had this gospel-first mentality, just like Paul had. And they saw their imprisonment not as a a terrible thing, but as an opportunity, a platform to share the gospel. However, if we put the gospel first, it, it has another effect. Not only do difficult circumstances become a platform to share the gospel, jealous rivalries disappear for the sake of the gospel. Jealous rivalries disappear for the sake of the gospel. See, Paul had another hardship. Not only did he have chains, he also had enemies, or competition, we might call it. And this came from other Christians. Uh, in case you haven't learned this yet, Christians and even churches sometimes can be jealous and envious. Uh, maybe you've experienced that firsthand. If one church down the road begins to grow larger and the other church begins to be, get jealous of that. 
Another seeks to make converts just so they can compete with the other Baptist church down the road. You know, Christians don't always work with the right motives, do they? Not always. Uh, let's look at this in verse 15. And some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. So another hardship that comes with him, not only is he experiencing the difficulty of chains, Paul is also having people who are trying to make his life worse by stirring up controversy and strife and division. And there's two groups of people who are preaching the gospel here. One with good motives and one with bad motives. How does Paul react to this? Does this make him angry and upset? Go down to verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, and whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is pleased, preached, and in this I rejoice. He rejoices? You've got to be kidding me. You hear people who are Christians, who are preaching, and they're doing it with wrong motives, and Paul says, I'm just glad Christ is preached. And I'm going to rejoice. It's like you can't bring him down. He's just overflowing with joy and, and happiness here in prison. Jealous rivalries disappear. Paul's not getting caught up in the competition. Let's look at these two groups, though, that he talks about. He lays them both out in verse 15. First, we're going to talk about the competitors with bad motives. Competitors with bad motives. You see that at the beginning of verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even from strife and envy. If we keep reading uh, down a little bit, you'll see that the former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. That's that group who's working out of strife and envy. Here's what we learn about this, these competitors. First, they are operating with strife, envy and strife, two terrible qualities. However, my guess is that I imagine a lot of us here have experienced these two feelings before. Envy. It's that desire to want what someone else has. And actually, this word envy implies more than that. It's not just that I want something you have. I want something bad to happen to you. I want you to fall in order that I can have what you have. So it's, it's more malicious than just, I want that too. It's more... I don't want, I can't have it, so you shouldn't have it. It's this competitive, quite honestly, evil spirit that can grab hold of us. Vengeful. Uh, one commentator writes, out of envy toward Paul, perhaps with a kind of unsavory delight that enjoys kicking an opponent who is down, they now view Paul's imprisonment as their chance to preach Christ, quote-unquote, correctly. This is the smug satisfaction that a person feels when someone else falls. Envy. Envy's a terrible thing. That green monster, as it's sometimes called. It eats a person up. And apparently these competitors, if you will, these rivals, considered Paul and were envious of Paul's ministry. Here's Paul and all the things he's doing, and we want, to, we want that. We want that kind of acknowledgement. So they were out for themselves. It also says here that they were operating with strife. It's the idea of conflict. Conflict that grows out of rivalry and discord. So they're stirring up problems. They're stirring up the pot. 
Envy and strife is what defines these people. Not only that, but also selfish ambition. You'll see that down in a couple verses there. Former preached Christ with selfish ambition, not sincerely. With, with selfish ambition. They want to be first. They want to be recognized. Uh, these preachers wanted to have the biggest churches, the largest buildings, the book deals. They wanted the spotlight. And they were envious of Paul because in his ministry, he wasn't seeking the spotlight, but a lot of times he had it simply because of the impact he had. They wanted them. Again, this may be something you've already recognized, but ministry can, for some people, be an avenue to fame. And preaching the gospel can be done for selfish means. Trying to receive the praise of men. John Scott, in his wonderful book on preaching, says that pride is without doubt the chief occupational hazard of the preacher. That's true. That pride can so often replace pure motives. And it can do it very subtly. Uh, not a whole lot of preachers go into the pulpit thinking, I want glory. A lot of the times they go with, with a good motive. I want to preach Christ. But somewhere along the way, that motive gets mixed with, oh, and I, I would also like some of that glory myself. It's a very subtle thing. And, and these rivals were, were selfish in wanting the spotlight and wanting the attention for themselves. They also operated with ulterior motives. See that in the, this verse where it says uh, that they are not acting not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. They're, they're not sincere. They're not transparent. They have a, an agenda that's hidden behind the surface. They would say, if you ask them, oh, I just want to preach Christ. But beyond, behind that motive is another motive. They're not sincere. They have ulterior motives. And one of their ulterior motives is mentioned here. That they would add affliction to Paul's chains. They want to make Paul miserable in prison. It seems awfully cruel. But then again, if you're eaten up with envy, you'll do cruel things. And so, they want to add affliction. They want to make Paul more miserable. You notice though? It says there they were supposing to add affliction or thinking to add affliction. That was their intention. It just didn't work. Paul wasn't going to get caught up in this petty rivalry. You see, he put the gospel first. He wasn't going to get caught up in this party spirit that they were so wanting to. And so he wasn't miserable. He wasn't afflicted by this. And what does it even mean to try to afflict him? Chances are they wanted... Paul to look at their ministries and see how they were doing, how they were growing, and then Paul would be envious. I think that's what the affliction they were trying to add is: the more successful we are, then Paul's, then he'll, he's going to look at us and say, "Oh man, why can't I be them?" Well, he's not interested in that kind of envious spirit. These rivals were a heartache, no doubt, or could have been a heartache to Paul. But we also see a good side of this too. Because he said back in verse 14, some of the brethren are speaking more boldly in Christ. He talks about those as well. They preach Christ from goodwill. That is goodwill towards Paul. They don't have any ill will or ill feelings towards Paul in prison. They have no jealousy or envy. They're just preaching Christ because Christ must be preached. And then he says more about their motives. The latter out of love, he says, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The latter out of love. So there's two motivations. And these motives ought to drive every preacher. Number one, the love of God. 
Notice he says, the latter out of love. Again, he doesn't specify. Love for the lost, love for the believers, love for God, love for what? Well, I think ultimately it is love for God that spreads to the others. If you love God, you'll love your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, you'll love the lost. And on down it goes. The point is, the preacher who is preaching with the right motives is first the love for God. They love God. It's not any other reason. It's not because they love self or they love glory. It's that they love God supremely. Love God supremely. They also have a desire to defend the gospel. Notice this. These people are knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. They, were, they weren't ashamed of Paul. They weren't trying to undermine Paul. Instead, they saw that he was defending the gospel. And that is what they desired to do. Again, the word apologia here from which we get the word apologetics. Defense. Defense of the gospel. It refers to a courtroom defense. Now, I'm not necessarily sure that these preachers were practicing what we would call apologetics today. But they were making a defense of the gospel, presenting it clearly, making arguments when necessary for the truth, the claims of the Bible. And so they were passionate about their love for God and their desire to defend the gospel. And those ought to be the real motives for people who preach. One author states it like this. People preach the gospel for a variety of reasons. Some see it as a path to fortune and fame, preeminence and prestige. More subtly, some preach Christ with one eye on the gospel and another on the others engaged in ministry, falling into the deadly trap of comparing results. Still others preach Christ because he is their greatest delight. And that was this group. They preached because they delighted in the Lord. What's the conclusion, though? Verse 18. What then? In other words, Paul, what do you think about all these groups? He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Now, he's not saying that motives don't matter. He's not saying that it just preach Christ and it doesn't matter what your motives are. But he is saying, by putting the gospel first, I'm not interested in rivalries. I'm not interested in who has the biggest church and who has the most people attending and who has the biggest offering this week. I'm not interested in those things. I'm interested in, is the gospel being preached? By the way, these competitors, rivals of Paul, they were preaching the real gospel. It wasn't that they were false teachers. Paul has a lot of things to say about false teachers. They were preaching the true gospel. They were just caught up in the competition of it, the rivalry. So in other words, Paul's not saying, I'm okay with the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Paul. He's saying, I'm okay with the Baptist church up the street that has a different focus than we do. A different, uh, you know, there, there are quote-unquote competitions. So it's not a matter of doctrine. It's a matter of simply rivalry. He's not going to get caught up in petty politics or comparing attendance numbers. They weren't his competition. Paul says, I'm just glad they preach Christ. And God will sort out the motives. He'll take care of that. But when we put the gospel first, it allows us to overlook rivalries that sometimes distract us. No one is our enemy who preaches the gospel of God's grace. Now, we may have differences, okay? And here's the thing. At a church like ours, we talk about doctrine. We talk about what's true and what's false. And, and we try to clarify where we stand on things. And sometimes that can come across, not intentionally, but sometimes it can come across as 
We, are, we alone have the truth. And that's not what we're trying to say. We're not trying to say. Now, there are churches that differ from us, and God bless them. They preach the gospel. But there, there are areas that we, we would not see eye to eye. And we could be okay with that. Not affirming what they say, but simply saying they do preach the gospel, and for that we can rejoice. <clears throat> See, when we hold tightly to the gospel and, and we put the gospel first, we're able to overlook some of the, the less significant things. George Whitfield and John Wesley are a good example of this. You might know this from history. Two of the most powerful evangelists in the 1700s, they had very different ideas. Their doctrine was different. John Wesley was a staunch Arminian. George Whitfield was a strong Calvinist. And they had their disagreements. They had their arguments. There were times they didn't even get along that. But by the end of their life, they both recognized he preaches the gospel. We're preaching the same message. We, yeah, we disagree on some things. And they never, never were really reconciled on that. But they were willing to say he preaches the gospel preaches the gospel. In fact, John Wesley preached the funeral sermon for George Whitfield. That two men who had every reason to be rivals, had every reason to be competition, and angry at each other, instead they put the gospel first and overlooked some of those differences. I think that's a healthy lesson to be learned. See, hardships, whether it's difficult circumstances, whether it's jealous rivalries, are changed, transformed when we put the gospel first. So the big question for all of us is, do you put the gospel first? Do you put the gospel first? Because if you don't, you're likely to see those difficult circumstances as just terrible. Terrible inconvenience, a terrible problem, instead of seeing an opportunity to share Jesus with someone. You're going to see that competitor, that rival, as the enemy and plot against them instead of seeing and saying, well, they preach the gospel, and for that, I can be glad. So do you put the gospel first? That would be my, my hope for us this morning. Because as we go from here, this week we put the gospel first. That when bad things happen and, and inconvenient circumstances crop up, instead of saying, oh, no, our first response is, how can I use this to share about Jesus? How can I live my faith in this circumstance? And that's the key to joy, even in hardship. I want us to close this morning by doing something that uh, we probably don't do as often as we could. We oftentimes will pray for our church, won't we? We'll pray and thank the Lord that uh, He's put this church here in Trafalgar. We'll Pray that the Lord will bless and, and use this church. But I want to take in our closing moments here a chance to pray for other churches. There's a lot of churches that preach the gospel that may not see eye to eye on us on everything. But they preach the truth. They teach the, the way of salvation according to the Bible. They're not our rivals. They're not our competition. They're not enemies to be looked down upon. But brothers... And we want to pray for them this morning.